2009, October 13. Today is Astronomy 141, Lecture 14, Cells. Okay, so we're still going through this period, this section in our class where we're going to be spending a lot of time talking about biology. And again, I'm, I'm really cherry-picking this field for those aspects of biology that I think are going to inform us about asking questions of astrobiology. So if, I, if any of you have taken biology classes of a much more advanced level and I skip over your favorite portions, I'm sorry. So today we're going to talk about the basic functional element of all living organisms on Earth, the cells. So this lecture is going to describe cells. This is the basic structural and functional or unit of all life on Earth. Basically, we're going to talk about the characteristics and components that go into cells, the various chemical components, carbohydrates, lipids, proteins, left-handed amino acids, and nucleic acids are the common features that are found in every living cell on Earth. We're going to find that cells naturally divide themselves into two basic groups called prokaryotes and eukaryotes. We'll be defining them as for what their characteristics are and the type of life they're associated with. And finally, towards the end of lecture, I'm going to introduce something known as the phylogenetic tree of life, or the phylogenetic tree for short, which is a way of ordering and organizing the different forms of life on Earth in a way that shows their biochemical and genetic relationships. Now, the old traditional ways of doing things was to classify things according to their appearance, genus, species, you know, kingdom, phylum, class, order, and all that good stuff. That's given way in the last few decades to a much deeper understanding that the nature of the relationships among creatures, despite their physical outward appearance and relationships, really lies at a much deeper cellular level, at the biochemical and genetic relationships among them. And we find that the general ordering of life can be into three basic classes, bacteria, archaea, and eukarya. Bacteria and eukarya we're familiar with, if not the names, Archaea is the actually interesting new subgroup that may have important implications, both for understanding the first forms of life that emerged on the Earth, and also may have implications for what we might expect to find if there are forms of life, for example, elsewhere in our solar system or around other stars. And so the int great interest among the astrobiology community in the archaea as a group. So today we're going to be talking about how, however, how these individual functional groups work and what the characteristics are of cells to give us some idea of how they work in life. So again, the, the basic definition to keep in mind is what a cell is fundamentally is it's the basic structural unit of all living organisms. Living organisms can be single-celled creatures like this, this nice algae shown here, or they can be Creatures like us, which are composed of many trillions of cells, many of which carry on specialized functions within our bodies, that taken as a whole make up a, a person. <laughs> that, was a, that was a good little technology fail. So what is a cell? Well, fundamentally what a cell is, is a way of an organism basically defining a boundary between the inside world and the outside world. Cells provide this boundary, which is referred to as the cell membrane. Its basic function is very simple. It keeps the biochemical functioning of the cell in and keeps the outside out, keeps the environment out, keeps the water out. Or, but not 100%. This membrane is not simply a baggie folded around the cell. The membrane is also per permeable. It allows nutrients in and wastes to get out. So all cells show this particular structure. And the question is, how are the cells constituted to produce these structures? 
Well, one of the things we, can, we, we find right away, when people actually understood that the fundamental unit of life was the cell, that the fundamental unit of biodiversity on the Earth were single cellular forms of life, as revealed through the microscope, what they started to see, which was a, a, quite a surprise, and actually in retrospect a big surprise when you look at it in detail, is that despite the, the amazing diversity of cellular life forms on Earth, and we still don't know even all of the single cellular forms of life on the Earth today, much less those that might have existed in the past, is despite that immense diversity, there's a tremendous amount of commonality and similarity of structures among these <laughs> cells. In fact, so much so that it begins to give us clues as to where cells may ultimately have emerged from. Some of these similarities are pretty straightforward. For example, all of them, 100%, use DNA to encode hereditary information inside of them. They may locate that DNA in different places. They may use different amounts and different coding sequences of DNA, but they all use DNA. We haven't found any exceptions to that yet. There are things like viruses, but viruses use RNA, and that's what people think maybe makes viruses different from the kinds of life we're talking about here. The other thing that will turn out to be clear both in today's lecture and in tomorrow's where we talk more explicitly about the chemistry of life is that the biochemistry of cells is broadly similar from seemingly completely unrelated forms of life. For example, just to bring up one example, all cells, no matter what their constitution, whether they're in human, ancient bacteria, or otherwise, for energy, use the ATP-ADP cycle. Why that instead of something else? For example, we find that all cells use amino acids as part of their protein function, to build proteins as the functional units of proteins. And yet, there's a specific mix of those chemical compounds, especially among the amino acids, that are only found in certain forms within living creatures and, of course, have a much greater diversity of form outside of the boundaries of life. So the amino acid molecule here shown as an illustration. This tremendous commonality is often pointed to as a piece of evidence that what we're seeing is the remnants of the history of life on Earth. We're seeing the fact that there must have been, at some point in the past, a universal common ancestor that started out with these chemical, biochemical um, components that make up cells. And since the, the way in which cells build those components is coded in their genetic information, all subsequent generations, mutations, and split-offs of that original form of life will carry the, that, the instructions for how to make that biochemical machinery with them. What we do not see, at least yet, on Earth are any forms of life that are completely different, as if they simply emerge from a different genetic lineage with a different set of chemical machinery. We don't find, for example, forms of cells that use a DNA which doesn't have the four standard base pairs. We don't find forms of life that use amino acids that are completely not common to others, or use right-handed amino acids, for example. We only find certain limited subsets of the chemistry of life, and yet it's expressed in an amazing diversity of forms. So that's one of the first important clues that we have both to the nature of life on Earth and perhaps to give us some information about what we should be looking for to identify extraterrestrial life is the tremendous commonality and interrelatedness of the intimate details of the biochemical machinery of cells. It's a surprising result. The other thing that comes into play with the machinery of life, if you will, the basis of life at the chemical level, is that every single form of life we have experienced here on Earth is based upon carbon chemistry, the unique properties of carbon to enable the chemistry of life. We'll say a, a little bit more about this today and again a little bit more about some of that in tomorrow's lecture. 
Now, if you took a human being apart, imagine that somewhere tattooed on your butt is a, is a contents label that tells you the complete breakdown of the contents of a human being. The FDA hasn't gotten there yet, but they're on their way. Um, you would find, in fact, the breakdown of the chemical composition of human beings is about 65% oxygen, about 18.5% carbon, and then various and sundry mixes of hydrogen, nitrogen, so carbon, oxygen, hydrogen, nitrogen, the CHON atoms, and then tiny slivers of a whole bunch of other stuff. This yellow slice of the pie here is a pileup of calcium, phosphorus, potassium, sulfur, sodium, chlorine, and magnesium. And then the last little tiny slice of the pie here is trace stuff, everything else. Maybe there's a little selenium in there. Maybe there's a little bit of silicon. Maybe there's a little something else, a little iron, for example, in your blood. But you'll notice that pretty much the dominant component is oxygen. So why is it we don't say that life is oxygen-based? Because oxygen is 65% compared to only 18.5% carbon. And the reason is because most of that oxygen is actually in the form of water. Almost all the oxygen in your body, or at least a big fra the biggest fraction of it, is bound up with two hydrogens to make water. It's the old statement that we're mostly water. So that's where most of our oxygen is. Water is a terrific solvent. It's a terrific medium for, for chemistry to go on. But it's not the guiding chemical. It's not the thing that makes for all the biochemical diversity. That thing is carbon. All of the basic functional structures of life, and that's the important key word, functional structure in cells are based on carbon chemistry or com carbon compounds, what we refer to often broadly as organic compounds. Why is that? What's the deal with carbon? What is it that makes carbon so special? Well, carbon actually turns out to be very, very unique. It's got a very unique chemical properties that make it extremely versatile for forming compounds. Carbon nucleus is at its center. Carbon is six protons. That's what makes it carbon, and six neutrons in the usual carbon-12 isotopic form. This, each of the six protons is going to be balanced in a neutral carbon by six electrons. Now, the arrangement of those electrons around the carbon is what gives carbon its special chemical properties. Remember. Chemical properties reflect the arrangement and ordering of electrons surrounding the atom. The first two electrons of the six form a closed inner shell. They're basically irrelevant to us at this point. They don't participate in the chemistry because they form a quantum mechanically closed shell. But it's these four outer so-called valence electrons. These are the ones that are available for forming chemical bonds with other atoms. And it's these four, electron, four valence electrons that gives carbon its very special property. There's only one other reasonably abundant element in the chemical table that has four outer valence electrons, and that's silicon. But silicon does not have anywhere near as rich a chemistry as carbon for a variety of reasons, what we'll touch on in a different lecture. The thing is, with these four electrons, it can form a, a chemical bonds with a vast array of other chemical elements, including other carbon atoms. Furthermore, because there are four electrons available for bonding, it can form single, double, and triple bonds. Those are increasing strength of bonds, which not only make interesting compounds, but make very chemically durable compounds. And that's one of the important pieces of carbon chemistry. Turns out that carbon chemistry is fearsomely rich. It's almost frightening. Right, you can think of the number of oxygen-based compounds, number of silicon-based compounds, and you can almost name them on your hands and maybe with your toes. Carbon, we still don't know the number of possible carbon compounds that are made. It's numbered somewhere in the millions. 
Carbon, for example, can form extremely long chains. For example, like the simplest carbon at molecule I can form is methane. Carbon with one hydrogen bonded onto each of those electrons to make up CH4. I can take away one of those hydrogen and use one of those electrons to bond with another carbon, and I can make from methane, I can make ethane. And then from ethane, I can go up to three carbons in a row. In fact, I can keep piling that on. Chain after chain. So I can go up to two, three, four. And I don't just have to go in a line. I get tired of going in a line, I can turn a corner. So these two molecules here, shown here on the, on the second row here, have four carbons and ten hydrogens. But notice the difference of the change of structure. Both are, CH, are, are C4H10 to write down the simple version of their chemistry. But I take a little kink and I make this sort of cross-shaped or under upside-down T-shaped molecule. It has completely different chemical properties for the same mix of atoms. I can then decide, yeah, I don't want to throw a single bond in there. I throw a double bond. These double bonds, I can move around. I can put the double bond in this location or in this location. So I get different chemical forms, same number of atoms, I just move the bonds around. And I got two completely distinct chemical compounds with distinct chemical behaviors. And then if I get tired of doing chains, I can fold them into rings. And I can even pile rings upon rings so I can build molecules that look like chicken wire, which have tremendous functional shape. Some of those chicken wire molecules wrapped around into tubes made in synthetically in the laboratory are called carbon nanotubes. They're far stronger than any compound we've ever made. And that's just scratching the surface. So carbon chemistry allows with it an amazing diversity of possible chemical forms. And it has some really interesting properties. But one of the properties that makes it really special is a large number, in fact, most of these are easily soluble in liquids especially liquid water. So we take oxygen, that very abundant element, we make mostly bonded up with hydrogen to make water. So that's one piece. I make a medium. I make a nice soluble medium, and then I can make literally millions of different kinds of chemical functional units out of just carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, and maybe mix it up, I'll throw a couple of potassiums in there, or some sodiums or phosphorus or even other fun stuff. And almost all of them dissolve, not all of them, but a lot of them dissolve in water or are easily transported in water. So I've got a medium, and I've got all the pieces. So carbon chemistry is really special. Now, some people accused in the astrobiology world talk about um, carbon chauvinism, the idea that, well, if you look around the Earth, everything is basically carbon-based. Why do we expect that elsewhere in the universe? Well, we expect the same physical laws work everywhere else in the universe. And we know that carbon is a very, very abundant element, as are hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen. So why would it choose a completely other form of chemistry when there's so much carbon, oxygen, nitrogen around, and the chemical properties of carbon make it really phenomenally versatile for forming different chemical functional units? So this is one of the interesting facts of life, but also the mysteries of life, is carbon may, in fact, be inevitable as the basis of life. <laughs> Not the only possibility, but it, just, it may, in fact, be inevitable. It may not be surprising that if we encounter life elsewhere, we're going to find carbon-based life. And it has to do entirely with the unique chemistry of carbon. Now, one of the things I want to say, just as a side note, you'll often hear carbon chemistry referred to as organic chemistry. And the, car and the chemistry of everything else is inorganic chemistry. The reason for that is histor primarily historical. It used to be that the only way you could make these various carbon compounds was in life living systems. 
Living systems could synthesize them, but chemists couldn't make them themselves. There was no such thing as abiotic synthesis of a carbon compound. No one had figured out how to do it until basically into the 19th century. So they thought that carbon chemistry was special, not because of the quantum mechanics of carbon, which they didn't know, but because life had a certain life force with it, a via vitis. And this life force is somehow what led to carbon synthesis, carbon compound synthesis. It was only in the 19th century with the ability to come up with ways to synthesize carbon compounds without using life processes that people realized, oh, this is just chemistry just like all the other stuff. And with the discovery of modern atomic theory and modern quantum mechanics realized that the underlying physics of electron bonding is what made carbon chemistry special. We were just seeing the amazing diversity of it in life's exploitation of carbon chemistry, which is why it was there. However, because of the tremendous diversity of carbon chemistry and some of its special needs, a whole special body of technique had grown up to, to do the chemistry of them, which is why in the 21st century we still divide chemistry into organic and inorganic chemistry. But we no longer think it has to do with a vital spark in carbon chemistry. It's just the unique chemical properties of, chem of, of carbon. So what are, the, what are the chemicals that matter to us? If there's millions and millions of types of chemicals that can possibly be formed with carbon, which are the ones we care about for life? Well, the major components of all the cells are not surprisingly going to be made up of complex organic molecules of various kinds. For example, carbohydrates, which I show a glucose here, which is a common form of carbohydrate. Sugars and starches are carbohydrates. Carbohydrates basically are storage of energy or transport of energy. You put chemical energy in a form which can be moved around. Sugar is a very uh, commonly familiar one to you. They also can provide structural components. They can form chains that actually have a certain amount of stiffness to them. For example, the, the, the uh, material cellulose, which was basically the stru major structural member, for example, in wood pulp. These are examples of carbohydrates. They're extremely common and they're somewhat interesting to us, but only as sources of energy or structural components. The next piece of life, the next set of cells that are very interesting are the so-called lipids, of which fats, the familiar fats, are examples of lipids. These are long chains of carbon molecules with you know, a couple oxygens or something else hanging off the back, sometimes some, some phosphorus. So phospholipids, which is one of these long chain molecules with a phosphorus in it, turn out to be important for life. That's kind of just a detail. These are important because they, too, will store and transport energy, right? You can store energy in the fats in your body. If you no longer are eating and taking in carbohydrates and you're not eating anything at all, eventually you'll start burning through the fat in your body. It's a longer-term way of storing fat. One of the reasons why it's useful for storing fat is lipids are not water-soluble. And in fact, it's the non-water solubility of lipids that make them very interesting because they turn out to be the main components of the cell membranes. They turn out to be one of the principal structural components of cells. They also can play a role in cell signaling. Now, that's not actually cells talking to each other. That's the way in which biochemistry within cells is mediated, basically controlling cellular function. Lipids can actually play a special role in that, too. So here's an electron microgram of a cell showing the outside and the inside with the structural stuff. This is a bacterium, so it looks fairly structural. It's just a bunch of junk inside of a big bag. You can see that in this electro electron microgram, the, the bag is double-walled. If you looked at it at the molecular level, what you'd find is that double wall, in fact, is a bilayer sheet of long-chain fat molecules, the heavy ends of which are sitting there dangling in the middle, forming a double membrane. By replacing various of these members here with other cells that might make openings, 
or might allow basically chemical filtration, the membranes can basically adapt themselves to become permeable. They can allow water or other nutrients in and they can expel waste out. How they bring stuff in and expel stuff out has to do with the details of basically the biochemistry of these things. We're not going to go into that, but basically to show that the whole thing is basically a bit of cellular machinery. So lipids are really important. In fact, they're going to come appear again in a couple of different places because of naturally occurring lipids may show some of the basic original structures of pre-life. One of them may have involved the formation of little lipid globules, which very naturally form into bubbles, and those bubbles make for a natural outside and inside. If you manage to trap inside that bubble some biochemical machinery or some chemical machinery, you can start building up little protofactories surrounded by a membrane. A clear boundary between inside and out is one of the characteristics of life. But the real action, the real action in cells, those were just structure and kind of sources of energy. The real action in cells are in these compounds called proteins. Proteins are the main chemical chemicals of cell function. All the things that cells do biochemically are mediated in some way by proteins, either the construction of those proteins or the use of those proteins to mediate chemical reactions. Now, proteins are actually long chains of molecules formed by chains of units called amino acids, which we'll define here in just a minute. They can be very short or they can be extremely long chains which fold up into very complex three-dimensional structures. Now, some of these protons actually proteins actually perform structural roles. If you want to see an example of structural proteins in work, at work, look no further than, for example, your fingernails or your hair. In fact, fingernails are a good example. It's a protein called carotenes that form basically this little hard structural horn here that we carry, the, what's known sort of vestigial claws we all carry around with us. Now, those are actually some interesting proteins that provide structure, but the ones that really matter for the, for the chemical machinery of life is a subset of proteins called enzymes. Enzymes are proteins that act as catalysts for chemical reactions inside cells. Now, what a catalyst is, a catalyst is a chemical compound that participates in a chemical reaction that is not consumed by that reaction. For example, if I wanted to make water out of hydrogen and oxygen, which I can do, just put a little hydrogen gas and a little oxygen gas together, light a match, poof, I get a big sort of Hindenburg-like explosion, and what comes out of that is steam, water vapor. Both the hydrogen, the free hydrogen, and the free oxygen are consumed by that reaction. A catalyst is something where the catalyst now basically mediates the reaction. So, for example, I might have a piece of metal, like platinum, sitting down inside of a piece of water as a platinum electrode and I run electricity through it, the platinum is acting as a catalyst for bringing oxygen and, for example, bringing hydrogen and water together in the bottle of water and cracking the water apart into bubbling off oxygen and bubbling off hydrogen, so-called electrolysis of, of water. So what's happening is I've got a chemical reaction involving energy, but the platinum is not being consumed by it. So platinum is, in that sense, a catalyst. Enzymes are really, really complicated, and we often use a cartoon to describe their function inside cell. They're basically ma chemical matchmakers within cells. The, the picture of the enzyme is the enzyme forms a kind of a chemical substrate. It's a big, nasty, folded-looking protein that forms sites that are like, like locks that keys can get into. And the keys are the shapes of the chemicals, the various carbon compounds or other compounds that want to form chemistry. So, for example, we have a substrate enters this active site here on an enzyme, two chemicals coming in, the presence of the enzyme lowers the energy necessary to be able to allow the chemical ex 
reaction to occur, whatever exchanges of electrons or protons happen to be involved in the reaction, and allows the reaction to occur. If those two compounds simply came together at random in the cell, there would not be enough energy within both of them to have the chemical reaction to make them turn into whatever, it, whatever chemical outcome you want. You always need a little bit of energy. You need to tap a little bit of energy to make chemical reactions occur. What enzymes do is they give a place for that reaction to occur and they lower the energy requirements for that reaction to occur. They act as mediators. And so they allow chemical reactions to occur on substrate that would not occur out free. And so they act, and at the end of the reaction, they then spit the two products out and themselves remain waiting there for the next chemical reaction to come on. It's an extremely important function of cells that enzymes perform. They're basically, these are the units of the cellular chemical machinery. So what are proteins? Well, proteins are basically built up, as I said before, of long chains of amino acids. Amino acids are molecules, of which there are about 70 known, which consist of two basic functional groups, and then what differs among the different amino acids are the pieces that fall in between. So the two basic groups are this C, Carbon, two oxygens, and a hydrogen, with the carbon and oxygen here holding a double bond. This COOH group is called a carboxyl. So if you make a pump up, punch a hydrogen onto the end of that, that carbon there, you make carboxylic acid. Okay. But instead of putting a carbon on there, you put another little carbon, which can bond with hydrogen or some other radical, which is the box with the R. And then on the other fourth carbon bond, on this sort of central carbon here, you hang off an am amino. An amino group is a nitrogen with two hydrogens. Now, nitrogen with three hydrogens forms a complete closed bond molecule called ammonia. But if you take off one of those hydrogens, one of the three bonds on the outside of the nitrogen outer shell is available and it bonds to the carbon, so it forms an amino group. So any of these compounds that consist of a carboxylic acid, some kind of central carbon skeleton here, and then this amino group hanging off the end are referred to generically as amino acids. Right now, we know of approximately 70 different amino acids, 70-odd. Maybe it's almost up to 80 nowadays. But what's interesting, of all the different forms of amino acids, only 22, a specific 22, are used by living organisms on the Earth. And in fact, of those 22, two of them are only found in extremely rare forms of archaea or other types of bacteria, very rare microorganisms, which literally are named in handfuls. And in fact, no one knew that those two amino acids were biologically important until they accidentally discovered those microorganisms with these wacky aminos running around, amino acids running around into them. So that's the first interesting clue. There are 70 possible amino acids, but life on Earth only picks 22. And there's no obvious reason why the other 50-odd amino acids should be excluded. Furthermore, not only do they only use those 20-odd amino acids, but they only use the left-handed versions of those amino acids. Never the right-handed version, ever, 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 in anything we've ever examined. Now, what do I mean by left-handed and right-handed? Turns out this is one of the interesting things about carbon chemistry. Not only is there a possibility of taking the same mix of carbon and hydrogen and forming different shaped molecules, called isomers, but it turns out that there's some symmetry in these molecules that bears a sort of a handedness. For example, your left hand and your right hand are not perfect copies of each other. They're mirror images. Similarly, with the simplest form of an amino acid, this structure, this sort of cross-like structure in the amino acid, actually has a handedness to it. 
there are literally left-handed and right-handed forms of the amino acids that are actually chemically distinct in terms of their fit. They're chemically identical. They're structurally identical, except that they just are opposite. There's a left-handed version called a levo, name of the, uh, so for example, let's think of it, levolysine or something like that. And then there's a right-handed form or dextro, so dextrolysine. And if you look in nature, if you look at amino acids which occur naturally in various places, there's lots of different chemistry that's not life chemistry that produces amino acids. We, we find amino acids, for example, in meteorites. You find a mix of left-handed and right-handed versions. And it's not exactly an even mix, but it's pretty close to 50-50 mix. So amino acids in non-living systems are kind of left and right-handed, kind of all doing their thing. Biological systems only use the left-handed version. We've never found a biological system anywhere on this planet that uses a right-handed amino acid. In fact, if you put a right-handed amino acid into a protein, the protein no longer functions because basically you've changed the shape of the key. Right? It's like a key fitting in a lock. If I changed the shape, if I took my key and made a, left, a right-handed version of a left-handed key, it wouldn't fit in the lock anymore, even though it's exactly the same key pattern. It's that little detail of the reflection symmetry that matters. So this handedness turns out to be essential for cell function. But we can imagine proteins made out of right-handed aminos. We could imagine com com building them in the laboratory if people have tried and they've done it. We can imagine biochemical system, chemical systems synthesizing these things. But life in all of its diversity on Earth has never, ever made one. Now, it turns out that this, this statement that they only use left-handed forms has got one exception, and that's the protein, that's the amino acid glycine. Because glycine is so simple, it doesn't have handedness. It's the only symmetrical amino acid. This particular fact is a shocking one. Everyone's looked for exceptions and have never found them. Now, there may be a, nat a reason in nature that we haven't yet figured out for why left-handed amino acids work and right-handed amino acids don't. We can't think, we don't know why, but it just couldn't, it doesn't mean we just haven't figured it out yet. But one of the things it tells us is we're only using a small subset of all the possible amino acids, and of that subset we only use the left-handed versions, is again taken as evidence of, an, of a common ancestor for all life. We're carrying, we're seeing in the amino acid chemistry of all forms of life some hint as to that original form of life that emerged on Earth. We're carrying forward that biochemical heritage. We don't see completely, isn't, and this isn't a case of what would you would expect, what if life arose in two completely separate, isolated ways? What if life arose on Earth and life arose on Mars, say, and a Mars rock came down to Earth and began doing its life thing on Earth? Why would that chemistry perhaps not be different? Why don't we find some, some forms of life that appear to be related to a purely left-handed version and purely right-handed? And it goes even further, this idea about left-handed amino acids. Let's say I made a, syn uh, a synthetic donut made of entirely of right-handed amino acids and all of its organic compounds. If you ate it, it would be the ultimate diet donut. You couldn't digest it because the body, your body's biochemistry for digestion can't handle right-handed amino acid chemistry. It will just pass right through you. So maybe this is interesting. Maybe this is a way we can spot a truly alien form of life. It, it doesn't share the same amino acid mix and maybe has different handedness in the amino acids. Or we're crazy. Maybe there's something about nature that favors left-handed versus right-handed. We just haven't figured it out yet. Very tantalizing idea, very, very interesting. And it's coded in the details of how the cells work. Okay, the final.
final piece of chemistry that all cells on Earth possess are nucleic acids. So we got the amino acids, the proteins, the carbohydrates, and the lipids. The final piece of the recipe book we need are the nucleic acids. These serve the very essential role of storing and transmitting hereditary information. They're so much more detailed, we're going to spend a separate lecture on them on Thursday just to talk about their function. There are two main forms of nucleic acids which are found in, in terrestrial life forms. The first of these is ribonucleic acid, or RNA, which is a single strand molecule. It's a very, very long polymer chain. This encodes instructions for making proteins and for making enzymes. So each of the different pieces, as we'll learn on Thursday, tells you how to code up to make different amino acids, and the ordering of those different amino acids forms the protoprotein instruction. So they're basically a set of blueprints. Dioxyribonucleic acid, or DNA, is the double helix strand here. This one is important because it encodes instructions for making proteins and for making RNA. So RNA are one of the functional members inside cells. And again, their, their structure and function is sufficiently complicated. We're going to leave it for another day. But DNA is the ultimate form of encoding of this information. And because of the double helix structure, we can actually split the helix open and build a copy on the other half, it has within it the ability to replicate. RNA has a replication capability as well, but it's more of a template replication. DNA has the ability to make a complete copy of itself. So it not only transmits and stores energy, stores hereditary information, it has within its biochemistry the ability to replicate that information and therefore provides the biochemical basis of heredity, making copies of oneself through reproduction. So these are very, very important molecules for life. And again, every single form of life we know on Earth has RNA and DNA operating functionally within it, and that RNA and DNA has exactly identical basic structure. The same four basic molecular pairs in the case of DNA, the same four molecular components shown here on the left, cytosine, guanine, adenine, and thymine in DNA, and cytosine, thiamine, adenine, and uracil in RNA. We do not find, for example, DNA with uracil. Doesn't exist anywhere on Earth. We might be able to make it in the laboratory, and people have begun to play games where they've made DNA-like molecules with four, six, or more base pairs. But everywhere on Earth, it's the same combination over and over and over again. Again, we're seeing the signposts of the heredity of a common ancestor. This is the biochemical machinery that's been passed down over the last three billion years. So what are the basic structures of cells? What are the types of cells we can make from this machinery? Again, what's really interesting is despite the detailed biodiversity of cellular forms of life, there are only two, actually now three, basic structures. Two of those structures are sufficiently similar that we lump them together into what are called prokaryotes. A prokaryote is a single-celled organism that doesn't have a cell nucleus, doesn't have a well-defined body that carries that package of DNA for its hereditary information. These turn out to be very compact and small packages. They're very small, between 1 and 10 microns wide. Again, for reference, a human hair is about 50 to 60 microns in, in diameter. So these things would fit easily wrapped around a human hair. They're the simplest and most common forms of life on Earth. And they constitute two different groups, the bacteria and the archaea. It used to be thought that bacteria and archaea were just simply lumped together as prokaryotes. But people began to realize that certain functional details, for example, the structure of the cell membranes and some of the interior 
functional chemistry is just fundamentally different in the archaea and bacteria. And you were seeing two different basic designs, if you will, or two different, design's not the right word, two different expressions of this single-cell prokaryotic form, meaning a nucleus-free cell. Now, these things are mostly bacteria and archaea form single-cellular life. There are no multicellular prokaryotes. There are, however, big colonies, which are just basically lumps of, of single-celled groups that kind of float and swim together and, ex- and can form structures that can exchange waste and expel waste and take in nutrients. But they don't act together in the sense of breaking up into functional groups where, okay, this part of the colony, we're going to be doing this particular function, this part of the colony, we're the waste handling part, and this part of the colony, we're being the structural part. They don't do that. They don't specialize. And so it doesn't ever turn into a truly multicellular organism. These are important to us because they're the first forms of life that are, appear in the fossil record, are clearly prokaryotes. And in fact, if you really want to get at the biodiversity of life, forget the lions and tigers and bears and elephants and people. We're just the fluff on the surface. The biomass of the Earth is dominated by orders of magnitude with the sheer mass of bacteria on the Earth. We are, a bacteria, we are basically parasites on a bacterial world, if you really want to look at us in our terms. In fact... There are more bacterial cells in the body's flora than there are functional cells of the eukaryotic form. (laughs) We're just carriers for bacteria. It's really complicated ones. The second form of cells are the much more complicated and interesting ones because they're the ones mostly making up, up us. They're called eukaryotes for the good kernel or the good nucleus. These are single or multi-cell organisms that have a well-defined cell nucleus and then are surrounded by a series of other structures called organelles that compartmentalize the various cell functions. Basically, a bacterium can be thought of as kind of a, uh, kind of a single function entity. Cells, eukaryotic cells, are big. They're big bags. They start basically where the bacteria leave off, between 10 and 100 microns. Some of these biggest cells are bigger than a human hair. The cell encapsulates all of the DNA information that carries the hereditary core of the cell, and then the various organelles around here perform the various cell functions. There are specialized organelles for one function, specialized organelles for another cell uh, function. I've shown two different types of cells here, and I'm just using the shapes here are important. The labels are not as interesting to us. Animal cells and plant cells have two fundamental different types of structure that are easily recognized. What's interesting about eukaryotes is they can form truly multi-celled organisms. They can combine together in which the cells work together to make a single organism. Furthermore, within those multi-celled organisms, those cells begin to specialize. For example, in a human being, you get bone cells and liver cells and brain cells and skin cells, all of which perform their characteristic functions, which together make up the larger organisms. So plants and animals and fungi and a whole bunch of other things are eukaryotes. So prokaryotes are the simplest life. Eukaryotes are very clearly a later form of life. They're a higher level of organization, a greater level of complexity. In fact, to give you some idea of where this complexity may have come from, we'll talk a little bit more about the origins of life next week as the the main topic there. Some of these organelles, if you could extract them from the cell, are themselves perhaps primitive prokaryotes. So maybe, in fact, a eukaryotic cell had its origin as kind of a mini-colony in which individual bacteria-like or archaea-like prokaryotes got together and performed a different function, and then you wrapped them in a single common bag. Just plant that idea there. 
So here's the size scale. I love this picture. I stole this off of Wikipedia. This shows you the size scale from atoms and small molecules to proteins, viruses, prokaryotes, and eukaryotes. As you go up in increasing complexity of the forms from inanimate things, proteins, up to the boundary of viruses, finally to prokaryotes and eukaryotes, we also see increasing size by at least a factor of 10 for each major step. So you can see the division between viruses and big organic molecules, proteins, is merely a degree of scale. It's part of the hint about the overall organization. We may be looking for atoms and molecules are easy. When they formed into proteins, we began the chain towards building larger and more complex. And once we reached the point of the boundary between viruses and prokaryotes, we came into self-sustaining, self-replicating, and evolving systems. So these are hints in here of the general evolutionary trend from simplicity to complexity. What's interesting when you look at life, and people notice this for a long time looking at big fauna, you know, the big, the big animals we can look at before the invention of the microscope is a lot of different forms of life kind of look the same. Okay, you know, dogs and wolves and different kinds of cats and lions and different kinds of birds all functionally and structurally look the same from the outside. So people began to classify life by their outward forms and appearances. The classic work of Linnaeus, for example. All of you went, took biology in your high school classes. I bet you can all recite kingdom, phylum, class order, family, genus, species in your sleep. I certainly can. In the last 20 years, things have changed completely. And one of the things that's changed completely is molecular genetics, the ability to take the DNA molecules apart and sequence the language of those DNA apart. When we sequence DNA, we've actually been able to find that the relationships are more than skin deep. The relationships go right down to the genetic level. And so there's been a reordering of this so-called tree of life that we used to draw with the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom and all those other things. And now sort of ignoring the outward physical appearance and asking what are their biochemical and genetic relationships. And because it gets down into the genetic relationships, this is what's known as the phylogenetic tree of life. So on a phylogenetic tree of life, we can define three different kinds of life, which are structurally different kinds of cells, the bacteria and archaea, are prokaryotes, and the eukarya are eukaryotes, which include all the multicellular forms of life. So single cellular and a combination of single and multicelled life over here in the eukarya. But we can find commonality among different types of these to where we can see different genetic differences. The longer the branch from a branching point, the greater the genetic difference from one side to another. And again, somewhat, still somewhat speculatively, where all three of these branches probably converge, this is probably the common ancestor that, that gave to us a single-celled organism of some kind as yet unknown, which gave to us the 22 amino acid chemistry, the ADP chemistry, the DNA and RNA chemistry that gives the basic structure of cells. These three branches basically show the detailed genetic relationships rather than functional or structural relationships. And again, the three groupings are bacteria, archaea, and eukarya. And there's differences here represent the kind of genetic differences. I'm going to be showing different versions of this tree because there are different constructions of this tree. This is very difficult to construct because we've only just begun to learn how to sequence the genome. 
Sequencing the human genome, the steps, the pieces of the genetic language, was a multi-billion dollar project that started about 20, yeah, maybe about 20 years ago. I remember the wind-up for that was a big deal when I was an undergraduate at Caltech. Leroy Hood's lab was one of the first labs that figured out how to sequence any kind of genome. They, did, you know, they could sequence just anything, but it was hugely laborious. The other day in the, in, the, in the newspapers, I was reading about projects which are now talking about not billion dollar projects to sequence maybe one random human genome, but the thousand dollar genome that our advances in computation and biocomputation have gotten to the point that it wouldn't surprise me if in a decade or more each of you could walk into some place and sequence your own genome for less than the cost of a stereo. What are we going to learn when we begin sequencing all of life on Earth? It's fascinating. So the bottom line here, the fact that all the cells are very similar to each other, there's a tremendous diversity of life on Earth. We haven't even begun to tap the diversity of the microbiological world. And yet, in this massive diversity is an amazing amount of commonality. All life only uses 20 to 22 left-handed amino acids. All life uses DNA to encode and store hereditary information. All life employs broadly similar cellular chemistry, even when clearly viable chemical alternatives exist. There's nothing special about this chemistry. It just happens to be ours. So this opens up some interesting possibilities. Could life on other worlds have different types of chem chemistry? Use different amino acids. Use right instead of left-handed, for example. Use something other than the familiar four base pairs of DNA. Maybe this gives us a way of looking at it. Furthermore, detailed genetic study has shown the deep interrelatedness of all the animal life on Earth. Even bacteria, eukarya, and strange things all have a deep relationship. We all have embedded within our DNA the history of all life on this planet. And we're only just learning how to open up those books and read the pages. So all of these things together are pointing to a common ancestor in the emergence of life. So the question becomes when we look at life under the worlds, what if the ancestor was constituted differently? What would life look like in that case? And so. That's a question we're going to need a lot more information to pick up, and we'll start building towards that over the next couple of lectures.